All right. Good morning, everybody. Get started with uh, School of the Word. We're going still through Second Peter. Um, for those of you who weren't here last week, or those of you who were, and want a reminder, uh, I've been seeing Second Peter um, as Peter's farewell address. Um, so it's a letter he wrote really, really towards the end of his life. He says in the letter that he expects the end of his life will be soon. And so he wants to write this as a reminder to the church of what he's taught and to stir them up in the truth of what God has revealed. Um, and and as in his farewell address, he's writing um, not only to remind them of the hope that they have shared in the gospel, but also to address a number of threats that he sees to the church. Um, And so as we get into the rest of this book, especially chapters 2 and 3, we're going to see him address um, the threats of false teachers um, and then the the threat that some might give up hope or or, um, doubt that Christ was actually returning. Um, And so the majority of this letter is written out of his concern for issues he sees facing the church in that present day and, and that the Spirit wants us to see as issues that we still face today. Um, and so the ways you can th- think about these different sections is Peter is writing to be sure. As we saw last week, to be sure that you're actually in the faith, that you've actually received the calling. Not just that you've identified with um, the name of Christ or uh, that you attend a gathering of Christians, but that you actually see the transforming power of Christ in your life as God gives you his nature. You become more like him, and that's how you can be sure you have received the calling. And this week, what we're going to see is he's going to tell them to be sure that God has spoken. And if you got the outline I gave last week, I changed it a little bit from that. And just as I read through this passage, um, I think that 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 really is what he's emphasizing here. Not just that we are rooting our faith in truth, but that the truth we're rooting our faith in is that God has spoken to us. Uh, Start here in chapter uh, verse 12. Um, This is his reminder. He says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things." This is a reminder. He's reminding them. He wants them to recall these things. A reminder of what? What is it that he wants them to remember? I think in part, he wants them to remember what we saw last week. He references these qualities, that the character of God is being formed in you, and that you remember what that looks like. I think also just that you remember what it is that Peter taught all all through his ministry, what the apostles taught taught. It's not necessarily all contained in this letter, but he's stirring them up to remember, we're going to see today, that God has spoken through the gospel, through Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to see today through the rest of this chapter. And I, I just to, before we get into the, the specific reminder today, I think it's interesting to see how Peter addresses this context. Right, right after this section, he's going to start talking to uh, the fact that false teachers are coming into the church. And he's, going to, he's reminding them of what's true versus what the false teachers have taught. But what he's not doing is he's not 
going through and arguing and, and giving all of the logical reasons that what they're teaching is false and this is why you need to believe what God has taught. He's not giving a full apologetics course. He's not even really doing any sort of apologetic here. He's just saying, remember what you have already heard. This is a reminder, not an argument. Um, this, 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 when you hear this reminder, when you hear him tell you, remember God has spoken, it, it's more like, um, like a sticky note you put on your mirror than like an exhibit you'd present in a courtroom. This isn't the evidence itself. It's just a reminder. You believe this. You accepted this already. Don't forget. And I think that's instructive as I think about um, what actually challenges people. When, when people reject the faith, either because they heard it or, and they didn't accept it, or they, they seem to be walking in it, they grew up in a Christian home, and, and then they walk away, I actually find that, that this sort of reminder is more helpful than an argument a lot of times. I'm in college ministry for a number of years, and, and this is my experience, but the reason I find people walk away from the faith is not really that uh, they, they sort of consider all of the arguments of the Christianity and the gospel, and they consider all the arguments in the world, and they decide, I think this one just makes more sense, it's more true uh, than this one, and I've, I've thought it all through, and I this, I'm just think this is the right answer. Certainly that's happening in a lot of those cases, right? That's, there is a discussion of truth. We're going to see Peter's going to say the, the false prophets are going to, false teachers are going to bring in heresies. But what's underlying that, the real reason that they walk away, I find, is one of two reasons. Either they never really heard what God said in the first place. What they heard or what they thought Christianity was is not what God said. Right? Maybe they just thought this was a, a, a good way of living. And I see this especially not just people who reject the faith. And there's, a, there's certainly a discussion in the world that Christianity only cares about a couple moral topics. And, and that's certainly not what God has talked about. That's not the center of what God is revealed. But even people who grew up in the faith, I think, can misunderstand this. And they can see and understand that if they will live a certain way, if they will pursue a certain kind of marriage, they'll follow a certain set of moral values, their life will turn out better. And that's what they thought Christianity was about. But that's not what God has said. That's not what the gospel is. It's not just an instruction about how to live. Certainly it's contained in there. But the heart of what God has said is not about what we do. And if that's what they understood Christianity to be when they walk into the world and they find the difficulty, they find that oftentimes following Christ is not easier. It doesn't give you all the things. It doesn't guarantee you a happy marriage or good children. And they'll walk away from the faith because they never really heard what it was that God said. Or, the other reason I'll find people will walk away is because they just wanted something more. They, they heard what God said, but what they really wanted was to be with this person or to pursue this kind of lifestyle or have this amount of money or pursue this sort of career, and that's what they really wanted. And so in their heart, the challenge wasn't God's truth versus the world's truth. It was God's truth Versus what I really want. God's truth versus their desire. I think if you see, um, that's what Peter is really addressing here. Right? He says they'll be, in Second Peter, skipping ahead a little bit, but there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. And that's, so there's, there's false teaching going on, but what's motivating them? And in their greed, 
they will exploit you with false words. These false teachers, they don't believe the truth of it. They might not believe in any truth. What's motivating them is their desires. And the reason that we listen to them is because we have desires too. Paul warns us in 2 Timothy 4.3, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. It's what they want. They're finding truth. They're finding ideas that allow them to pursue the kind of life that their desires are driving them to. And that's the, the tension that Peter is addressing in this letter. C.S. Lewis gives an illustration I think is helpful thinking about uh, how to engage argument, how to think about the conflict over truth. This is a, from the screw tape letter, so it's a li- written a little backwards. This is a, the personification of a, of a demon instructor teaching another demon how to tempt a person. Um, and so this is the advice that he, the senior demon gives. He says, The trouble about argument is that it moves the whole struggle on to the enemies, by which he means gods, own ground. By the very act of arguing, you awake the patient's reason. And once it is awake, who can foresee the result? Even if a particular train of thought can be twisted so as to end in our favor, you will find that you have been strengthening in your patient the fatal habit of attending to universal issues and withdrawing his attention from the stream of immediate sense experiences. It's the advice. If you're going to go pull someone away from the faith... Don't argue with them. Go remind them of all the things that you can offer them, all the things that they can want, their senses, their immediate gratification. That's how you're going to pull them away from the faith. And this is why Peter gives us a sticky note to remember. You don't need a whole bunch of arguments. You need to remember what you've believed in the gospel is that God has spoken. And if God has spoken, that's categorically different than any other words and ideas you can encounter. This isn't just another good idea. This isn't just another perspective on what the good life is. These are the words of God given to us that we have heard. And we need to remember that as we face our own desires. If we just engage on the idea level, if we just engage people who are challenged with the faith, who are, you want to bring into the faith, even yourself as you're walking through the realities of life, if you're just engaging on what do I think about this and not noticing the underlying motivations and desires that are drawing people and that we're living in a world full of temptations, full of difficulty, full of sense experiences, you're missing the main battle. So, what, how does Peter remind us? How does he point us to the truth that God has spoken? Starting here in verse 16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from, the God, from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We will ourselves hear, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. I think it's interesting as I started reading this that Peter appeals here to the transfiguration. If you notice the words he says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. There's actually two times that we hear those words. It's first at Jesus' baptism. 
and then at the transfiguration. But we know this is the transfiguration because he says it's on a mountain. But it's interesting that, that he points to the transfiguration when he points to the evidence of faith, the evidence of the gospel. What, what would you have pointed to? I think, I think I would have referenced the resurrection, right? I mean, we saw this guy rise from the dead. What else do you want to know, right? Like, that would be my evidence. But that's not what Peter points to. And I think that's interesting. So why does he choose this event? Well, I think a couple reasons. One, if you skip ahead to chapter 3, I think this is foreshadowing the hope that he has in the return of Christ. The glory that he saw on the mountain was a picture of what our ultimate hope is. Not only that Christ was restored from the dead and so will we, but that Christ will return and his kingdom will be established. And we will see him then as the glorified king setting everything right. That is fundamentally Peter's hope, that he is looking to Christ's return. And so he's foreshadowing that here. But I think the other reason in this immediate context is that this is the moment where he heard God speak. God says, he heard the voice say, listen to this man. And he's saying, it's not just our idea. What we presented to you, what the apostles' teaching was, this is not just our ideas on how to live. This is what we heard from God. And this doesn't work exactly as, as a apologetic. This isn't evidence, right? Because you could say, well, that's great, Peter, but I didn't hear it, right? I mean, you don't, you don't even know Peter. At least the churches in the first century would have heard him teach and would have heard him, uh, could know something about this person and say, like, well, Peter said it, so, I mean, that's, maybe that's reasonable, right? If we were just argu- operating on the argument side, you could say, well, you said you heard God speak. Muhammad said he heard an angel tell him what God said. This isn't exactly courtroom evidence. But again, he's not arguing. He's just reminding. You've already accepted this. He's writing to a church that's already believed God spoke. They already believed in Christ. And he's saying, remember, what we said isn't just our ideas. This is what we heard from God. If you want to debate the, te- the logic or get into it, we can do that separately. I have all the confidence in the truth of the gospel and that it is reasonable. There is apologetics that can be gone into That's just not what he's doing here. He's just giving us a reminder. And this kind of works to say that that what they heard from the apostles, it's not just like a a faux expert book. I think this is a term that that I made. I made it up or Frankie made it up. I don't know. But a faux expert book, I define this way. A faux expert book, it's about 200 pages long. Um, It's by someone with almost no credentials. And the gist of the book is, I did this thing one time. It worked for me. Let me tell you about it. That's 200 pages. I've read several of those. You probably have too. Dickens books can be helpful. There's no problem with reading that. It's good advice. It's good experience to say like, well, this person did it. That's interesting. Let me th- I've never thought about it. Maybe I could do that. But you hold a book like that a certain way, right? To say, well, that's great that worked for you. My life's a little different in this way. You know, maybe I can take this piece and I can adjust it. And maybe, this is the one part of your idea I took, but the rest of it, I think you're overstating. It seems like a lot of marketing, right? You, you kind of read a faux expert book a certain way because it's really just their experience, their ideas. And what Peter's saying here is that's not what we gave you. This isn't Peter's idea. This isn't the apostle's idea. This is the word of God that they heard. Listen to this 
man. I am speaking through this man. This is the expert book. What you can't take this to be is just sort of important. You can take it to be false. You can take it to be true. But if it's true, this changes everything. And then he appeals to say, what we heard God speaking is consistent with the way God has been speaking through all of the Old Testament, all of history. He says in verse 19, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And when Peter's talking about the prophetic word here, probably what he has in mind is the specific prophecies concerning Jesus. Um, The prophets uh, spoke about one who would be coming. And a couple examples of that would be uh, Psalm 2, uh, where he says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. For who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak, in, speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Right, the, the Jews understood this passage to be looking forward to one who would still come, to the Lord's anointed, who would be his son, who would put all nations under his rule. Right, in some sense, that was fulfilled through the kings, but, but it was clear that wasn't fully accomplished. What was being pictured here was still coming, and they were looking for one who would be the anointed. And so when Peter hears God say, this is my son, this is what he thinks of. We have the prophetic word fulfilled. Another picture was from Isaiah, which is written at the end of on the nation of Israel as they're going into exile. And it pictures one who would come and restore the nation, restore all nations. Isaiah 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Isaiah predicts... uh, That's my notes. Um, Isaiah here is predicting that God is going to send one who will bring justice to the nations, who will be his chosen servant. The same as the anointed son. And what Peter is saying is when we saw him on the mountain, we saw the one God had promised to send. We didn't just see something random. We didn't come down and tell you. We went up on this mountain and there was a bunch of lights and, and, and there were aliens. Like there was the spaceship and it was crazy. It wasn't just something out of nowhere. Right? This was what they had expected. This was the word more fulfilled and it has more weight because it was expected. 
Again, it still could be true. It's still Peter's word, but, but it's in line with the way God has been revealing himself. And it's not uncommon for God to speak. That's consistent as well. What Peter's kind of pulling on here is he's referring to, we heard God speak to us, just as he spoke to the prophets. And now he's speaking through Christ. That's, that's the way God has revealed himself. This is, this is sort of the, the pull from a systematic theology idea. This is the concept of revelation, that God has revealed himself. He spoke to the apostles. He spoke to the prophets. He spoke through the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's actually why we have the Bible and why we read it the way that we do, because we believe God spoke. We saw this pattern where he spoke to Adam. He spoke to Abraham. He spoke to Moses. And then he starts to speak through the prophets, and he tells them to write some things down. And then he's speaking to his people through a word. And now we see him speaking through the apostles. And so it's just consistent and in line with the way God has been working for him to reveal himself by speaking and also by speaking through a written word. That's what we believe when we read the Bible, that this is God speaking. People read this and it's different than anything else they've ever read. It's God speaking to them. And that's what Peter is telling us. What what is he speaking about? What does he say in his revelation? What is this word? When, when God chooses to reveal himself through history and to us today, what is it he wants to show us? You, you heard the phrase that, that the Bible is, is just basic instructions before leaving earth, B-I-B-L-E. It's not. <laughs> Troy's disappointed. It's not, fundamentally, basic instructions before leaving earth. It has instructions in it, parts of it. But that's not what God is saying. He's not primarily giving us instructions. The Bible is not basically instruction. Basically, the Bible is God revealing himself. That's what he has been showing us through all of the stories that he's been telling, through all of the ways he's interacted with people. That's what Peter wants us to see here. Right? If you go back to 2 Peter 1, 3, he's talking about how we have been given the divine nature, and how have we been given the divine nature? Verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain in life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. God saves us by revealing Himself. That's what we saw on the mountain. The way God has primarily revealed Himself now is through Jesus Christ. That's what He was revealing there. Hebrews picks up this idea. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And what has he said? Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. J.I. Packer summarizes it this way. He says, God has, in his book, God has spoken. He says, basic to the New Testament is the claim that Christianity is a revealed religion. The process whereby, through his dealings with a single nation, national family, Israel, God revealed himself to men, reached its climax in the person, work, words, and works of Jesus of Nazareth, God's incarnate Son. It is not just that men speak about God or for God. God speaks for himself and talks to us in person. The New Testament message is that in Christ... 
God has spoken a word for the world, a word to which all people in all ages are summoned to listen and to respond. And this is what Peter wants us to remember, that God has spoken and that what he has said is who he is. We need to remember who God is, and that's what will hold us fast amidst the difficulties of the world. A little, a little aside plug here for, um, this is why we need to read the Old Testament. I know the Old Testament is difficult. I know a lot of it seems um, difficult. And especially if you think the Bible is just basic instructions, you might say, what do I do with all of these stories? Or what do I do with all of this law that's sort of no longer applicable? Uh, I don't need to do these sacrifices anymore. Why do I need to read about them? It's because they're not about how to do the sacrifices. These are revealing to us who God is. And if you don't read the Old Testament, if you're not familiar with it, you're not going to understand all that you find in the New Testament. It's going to be like you come into a movie two-thirds of the way through. Right? You might enjoy that last third of the movie. Right? The climax normally happens there. There's a lot of activity, a lot of fun things. You're going to get some idea of who these different characters are and how they interact, but you're not going to understand all that's going on. You're not even going to understand the parts that that you enjoy. You're not going to understand why the resolution is as good as it is. If you don't read the Old Testament, it's going to be just like that. You're you're not going to understand on the mountain how Jesus is this expected person, the anointed son, the chosen servant we saw in Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. As you see his story, you're not going to understand um, how uh, how he is the... I can't find it in my notes here. Um, how his walking into uh, Jerusalem on a donkey is fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah. You're not going to understand um, how, it, but, but even more than those specific revelations, you're not going to understand why when he goes out and is tempted in Matthew 3, what God is revealing about himself there is that he is establishing a new humanity. He's redeeming humanity because uh, Jesus is doing what Adam could not. That when Jesus goes out and resists temptation three times where Adam failed his one time, he's creating a new humanity that now we're going to be in Christ, as Romans tells us, rather than in Adam. You're not going to understand how Jesus fulfills and brings to conclusion all of these stories in the Old Testament, how all of the tensions built up there are resolved in Christ. You're not going to understand how Jesus is the new David, which that means that God is the king we have been hoping David would be. Right? When you read Matthew 1 and you see that Jesus is of the line of David, it goes through him. You, if you haven't read the Old Testament and you don't understand uh, what happened, what promises given to David and how he sort of lives up to them but sort of doesn't, and it leaves this tension unresolved, you see Jesus come in and now what we see is God is giving himself, he's giving us the king we've been hoping for. So that when we look to what the new earth, the new heavens are going to be like, we're going to have a king who's perfect. We're not going to have problems that are unresolvable or, or government that is not functional. We're going to have a king who fixes everything. And so as we, what do you do with a passage like this? I, th- I think the question you ask is, have we heard God speak? Have we heard God speak? And is that what we are basing our hope on? Because right? if you haven't heard God speak, if your idea of 
what Christianity is, is just basic instructions. It, it's not going to work for you. That's not what God has said. He isn't just giving us instructions. Yes, there's a response to what he has done, to who he is. But if that's what you think Christianity is, or if that's what you're explaining Christianity to be to your children or to people you're trying to uh, share their faith with, that if you would live this way, that it turns out this much better, basically what you're giving them is, I tried this thing. It worked for me. Let me tell you about it. That's not what we're presenting. We're presenting God has spoken. He's revealed himself. He wants you to know him. This isn't what we've said. Just like Peter says, this isn't our teaching. This isn't our ideas. This is what God has said, and we need to make sure we are presenting the gospel that way. And then we need to make sure we remember the weight of these words. Peter says that, that these words are a light in the darkness until the sun is fully revealed. And what I think he means by that is, is the revelation we have about God is a light for us until we actually see God, when he returns and the sun comes up. We need to remember that as we walk through dark places. Because the sun hasn't risen yet. We're going to face difficulty. Those prophecies in Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42 were given to dark context, with nations raging, with a world that needed justice, it needed to be restored. That's the world we're still in. And we need to remember as we face difficulties, maybe we want to escape difficulty. Maybe we want to listen to someone who's promising, if you'll just do this or you'll live this way or you'll change this thing about your life and compromise on this, that will really fix these problems for you. That what we've heard in the Bible, what we've heard from God is not just one idea among many. This is the word of God. And even if it leads us through dark places, We need to hold that with a different weight. We need to listen and remember and put that sticky note on our mirror to say, we have heard God speak. Especially as we get into next week, the context that we can be sure false teachers will come. That we will face false teaching. And so we need to be especially sure that what we have put our faith in, what we know, what we remind ourselves daily, is that we have the word of God. Thank you for that.